recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 11th, 2013. We will be continuing our presentation of the Book of Acts with Chapter 16. Before I set out with my notes to write my notes on Chapter 16, I I thought I'd finish the whole chapter in one night. It shouldn't be too difficult. My notes tonight will take us to verse 12, I think. I'm adding a lot of history in, and, and, and the reason for that will become manifest later, I hope, and, and just background on the various peoples that Paul traveled to and preached the gospel to. That's of the utmost importance. A lot of people may wonder why we need that history. If we want to prove that the Bible is true and that the prophecies have been fulfilled in the manner in which the Word of God states, then of course we need that history because prophecy is history written written in advance. I sent out the Saxon Messenger editorial in, in an email. I think 8,200 people are on my mailing list. Not bragging, just stating a fact. And basically, this month's editorial is in two parts. Of course, the Saxon Messenger itself won't be out for probably another week. When it comes, it comes. It's not a news magazine. It's the September issue that we're we're awaiting, and this is October. But that's okay. It's a good thing it's not a news magazine. The Jews have run me out of business. This editorial is in two parts, both based on various posts that I've written in in the Christagenia Forum. The first one, the valid Christian ministry, and in fact, they were both. The the second one is what's in the name. They were both also introductions to this program. That's how they began. The valid Christian ministry is the Malachi chapter 4 ministry. Christ said that Elijah had been there and they did with him what they would or what they desired to do with him, and that Elijah will come, meaning in the future, that spirit of Elijah, that spirit of Elijah, according to Christ, if we do believe that we are in the times of the end, That spirit of Elijah is the only valid Christian ministry. The only valid Christian ministry because it's the Christian ministry for the times of the end by the words of Christ. By the word of God. We find it defined in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 isn't very kind to those outside of the covenant. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. Warning people of that, that's the valid Christian ministry. And that chapter ends with the line from which we learn the mission of that Elijah, which Christ said, is to come. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, the spirit of Elijah. The actual Elijah is not coming. 
before the coming of the great, before the coming of the day of Yahweh's wrath, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. That being the ministry for the end times, the words of Christ, and the words of, of, of well, Christ is God, and the words of Christ in, through the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 4, that is the only valid Christian ministry for this period, which we hope is the period leading up to the day of Yahweh's wrath, his day of vengeance on all of his enemies. That's the only valid Christian message for this day, if we do indeed believe that this is the day. And that message, turning the heart of the children to the fathers and the heart of the fathers to the children, well, as Simeon pronounced and as Luke records, Christ came for that very reason to fulfill the promises made to the fathers for their children, for them and their children. Therefore, the only valid Christian message in this day and age is therefore the, the message of white racial awareness found in Christian identity, of white heritage, of white Israelite heritage found in Christian identity, which does not belong to the Jews who are imposters. And speaking of Jewish imposters, the second part of my editorial was a short presentation I gave here called What's in a Name? A certain, um, a certain fellow, well, well, the leader of the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, that's the only thing I could really call it legitimately, he asked what was wrong with using an alias. Well, the Gibeonites went to the children of Israel with an alias. And the children of Israel made a compact with them, which they felt they had to keep. And basically, they violated the word of, the, the word of Yahweh their God, making a compact with these Canaanites, even though the Canaanites were under an alias. And it burned them in the end. It came back to haunt them in the end. There's no doubt it haunts us still today because they failed to destroy all the Canaanites in the land. Today we have a certain clown who's actually... His real identity proves that he has a Jewish heritage. There's no doubt. And he reads my paper and he protests. Well, he has to prove that I'm a Jew. And he's claiming that I failed the test of Scripture because I haven't proven that he's a Jew. Well, if you search, and, and if you're not familiar with the Christogenia Forum, if you search the Internet for the phrase, meet the Novembers, you'll find my proof that he's a Jew. The question is, what is a proof? Paul tells us to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. So a proof is a trial. A proof is an offering of evidence. 
that doesn't mean that everybody's going to accept the evidence. How many, how many trials are lost to prosecutors because of one juror holding out, not believing the quote-unquote proof? Because in that person's mind, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. The existence of a proof alone, therefore, doesn't mean that everybody inevitably has to accept something is true. And in fact, at the return of Joshua Christ, more people go into the lake of fire than go into the kingdom of heaven. Those people don't meet the proof and wouldn't accept it if they had it. They can't have it and it can't have them. A proof is an offering of evidence which helps to establish the truth, validity, or quality of something, according to um, the Free Dictionary online. It doesn't mean that everybody has to accept it. My proof that this person does have Jewish heritage, it's there. Just search for Meet the Novembers, and you'll find it on the Christiania Forum. You'll probably find it on one or two other websites. It's been copied already which is fine, but it's there. It's there for all to see. If somebody's name, if somebody can be demonstrated through official legal documents to have a particular name, even though they denied it, that's their real name, but it's on all these legal documents, well, it's their name until they prove otherwise. Now the burden of proof is on them to show that that's not their name. And they'll have to produce official legal documents in order to do that. Not just say, oh, that's not my name. This is my name over here. My name ain't Smith, it's Jones. Uh, I was born in, in, in um, Philadelphia. That, that's not proof. Saying that online, that's not proof. Only an idiot should believe that. We have a, a plethora of official government-approved transactions that this person's name is what it is. And then we have a plethora of evidence from independent sources that that's a Jewish name. So now the onus of proof is no longer on us. We presented our evidence. Let's see the proof to the contrary. In the meantime, the label fits. And this person has presented himself to the children of Israel in the modern world with the same doctrine that the Gibeonites had. That the children of Israel should accept people with Canaanite blood. That's the same exact trick that the Gibeonites used to fool the children of Israel 3,500 years ago. We're not going for it. We're just not believing. We're not swallowing that pill twice. Fool me once. So that's what a proof is. And we have our proof. And we presented it. And I don't need to say any more on the topic. I didn't want to say this much tonight. I've rambled too much already. 
Meet the Novembers. Search for that on Google and, and, and you'll find our proof. No doubt. And you'll find a lot more interesting things than that. Now we shall commence with the book of Acts, chapter 16, part 1. There'll be a lot of long digressions tonight. I believe these things are wholly necessary to present the book of Acts properly. After the events recorded in Acts chapter 15, Paul of Tarsus is the central figure throughout the balance of the narrative of the book. This is not because the other apostles did not do anything, but rather simply it is evident at this point that the lives and the missions of the apostles diverged completely. And Luke may well have had no records concerning the others before finishing his work as we have it. And in fact, the Gospel of Matthew, if the, histo if the historiography of Scripture, as I esteem it, is correct, at this point, the Gospel of Matthew may have been written, but none of the other Gospels were written. Luke's Gospel probably wasn't written, written out in full until towards the end of the book of Acts. Mark's Gospel, by all accounts, wasn't recorded. It's, it's actually the Gospel of Peter. It wasn't recorded until after Peter's death, and Peter lived longer than Paul did. So that Gospel couldn't have been written until at least 62 A.D. And John's Gospel was not written until his release from Patmos when he wrote, according to all the early Christian writers, when he wrote his gospel and the Revelation. So they weren't written until at least 94 AD, off the top of my head, right around there, within a couple of years. So the only gospel we might have by this time is Matthew's. None of the epistles of Peter were written at this time, the epistle of James may have been written, but that's difficult to say. The epistle of James definitely was not written until after Acts chapter 15. How long after Acts chapter 15? Nobody can tell. He died in 62 AD. The epistles of John weren't written until after his gospel, most likely until after his gospel in the Revelation, until after he was released from Patmos. There's no telling when the epistle of Jude was written. The letters of Paul, as of this point in time, Acts, the beginning of Acts chapter 16, none of them could have been written. None of them could have been written because he hasn't been to any of the places that he wrote to yet. As far as we can tell from the account in Acts, so none of those epistles could have been written. There's, there's conjecture that the, um, that the book of Galatians, that the, the, the epistle to the Galatians, I'm sorry, may have been written as early as the events in Paul's life which transpired in Acts chapter 16 and 17, 
And that conjecture is based on the fact that those Galatians whom Paul wrote to may have been the people of Lystra and Derbe and Iconium because those cities were in the province, the Roman province of Galatia. I don't think that's a correct assessment, and we will, we, we will address that tonight. So there we have it. Very little of the scripture was written by this time. Perhaps the Gospel of Matthew. Probably nothing more. And it's 47 AD in Acts chapter 15 by the chronologies that I have offered in this presentation to this point. After the events recorded in Acts chapter 15, Paul of Tarsus is the central figure throughout the balance of the narrative of the entire book. This is not because the other apostles did not do anything, but rather simply, it is evident at this point that the lives and the missions of the apostles diverged completely, and Luke may well have had no records concerning the others before finishing his work as we have it. In the rest of Acts, we have only one other appearance by the Apostle James, where Paul meets with him in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21. And perhaps the Apostle Philip is that Philip the Evangelist, who is mentioned in that same chapter, in verse 8 of Acts chapter 21. Now, this may well be the case, because in Acts chapter 21, Philip is living in Caesarea, where the Apostle Philip was last mentioned in Acts chapter 8, after he preaches the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. Discussing Acts chapter 15, and comparing it to Paul's statements, which he made much later in his epistle to the Galatians, we saw that the opinions of Paul and James diverged sharply in respect to Judean Christians and the Mosaic Law. While in Acts 15 it is recorded that all parties involved, Peter, James, Paul, and Barnabas, agreed that Christians from among the nations would not be bound to the Mosaic Law. Evidently, in Acts chapter 21, we see the opinion of James that the Judean Christians should indeed continue in that law. We will discuss that further in Acts chapter 21, and we will discuss the history of the Ebionite Christians in brief, because they came from that very idea. In this epistle to the Galatians, we see that by the time that he wrote that letter, Paul had come to consider it hypocrisy for Judean Christians to remain bound in the law of Moses, especially those which forbid them from having communion with the uncircumcised Christians of the nations. And Paul was right. There's only one body of Christ. However, two things are entirely evident. The first is that Paul, circumcising Timothy in the opening verses here in Acts chapter 16, could not 
have yet challenged Peter on his following James in that respect, as we see that Paul records in Galatians chapter 2. So that confrontation with Peter could not have happened up to this point. The second is that Paul circumcising Timothy on account of the Judeans could not yet have come to the understanding himself or he too would have been guilty of the same hypocrisy of which he later accuses the other apostles. Exactly when Paul did come to the understanding that Judean Christians should not be bound to keep the Mosaic law, meaning the rituals and the circumcision, cannot be told. However, he expresses that understanding in all of his epistles whenever the subject arises and especially in his epistle to the Romans, the Galatians, and to the Hebrews themselves. Yet, in Acts chapter 21, when Paul sees James for the last time, he seems not to have disputed this with him, and he acceded to the demand by James that Paul, that he himself, undergo a certain purification ritual in the temple. Evidently, Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans not long before embarking upon the last leg of his final trip to Jerusalem, mentioned in Romans chapter 15, verse 25. The circumstances of the epistle seem to indicate that it was written while Paul was in Cancreahi, K-E-N-C-H-R-E-A-E. As it is recorded in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, where he cut the hair from his head because he had a vow. The epistle to the Romans was delivered for Paul by a woman from that town. Cancreahi was actually not far from Corinth. In Romans chapter 3, Paul explained, and I'll read from verse 27, where then is the reason to boast? It has been excluded, meaning the boasting in keeping the law. Through what sort of law? Of the rituals? No, but through a law of faith. We therefore conclude by reasoning a man to be accepted by faith apart from the rituals of the law. Is Yahweh of the Judeans only and not of the nations? Yeah, also of the nations. Now, Paul defines these nations as the seed of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. So let's not lose sight of that. Seeing that it is Yahweh alone who will accept the circumcised from faith and the uncircumcised through the faith. Do we then nullify the law by faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. That's not the oxymoron it seems to be. We will discuss that at length when we when we present the book of Romans here early next year, Yahweh willing. So Paul taught that no man, and this is the important thing to gather from these verses, no man, Judean or otherwise, would be justified by the works of the law or the rituals. And he was teaching that before his final trip to Jerusalem to meet James. There's no doubt. Then Paul clarifies this in Romans chapter 9, where he stated, 
But Israel pursuing a law of justice with law did not attain. Why? Because it was not from faith, but from rituals. They have stumbled at the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I place in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And he who is trusting of him shall not be ashamed. Christ is the stumbling stone. Of course, when Paul says, but Israel pursuing a law of justice, which law did not attain, he's not saying that that's all Israel. He's saying those Israelites who are pursuing a law of justice. Again, Paul explains that same thing in a different way in Romans chapter 4, where he says, Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of the society, but through righteousness of faith. And Paul then proceeds to define that faith as Abraham's belief in God's promise that seed from Abraham's own loins would grow into many nations and inherit the earth. What's the faith of Abraham? Paul defines it as a belief in those words. That's how Paul defines it. And Paul went to those nations. These are the nations which Paul addresses throughout his ministry. Paul explains in that chapter that these promises preceded the circumcision and the Mosaic law, were independent of it, and therefore the promises are not superseded by the things which came later. He explains that same thing later in Galatians. Paul explains these same things again in his epistle to the Galatians. And while it cannot be determined exactly when the epistle to the Galatians was written, it was certainly written between the events of Acts chapter 15, which recur occurred about 47 AD, and his final meeting with James in 58 AD. In that epistle also, Paul taught an equality of Judeans and those of the nations in relation to the Mosaic Law, where he wrote explaining the eclipse of justification under the law in Galatians chapter 3, and I'll quote from verse 23. But before the faith was to come, we had been guarded under law, being enclosed to the faith destined to be revealed. So the law has been our tutor for Christ in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. But the faith having come, no longer are we under a tutor. For you are all sons of Yahweh through the faith in Christ Yahshua. For as many of you have been immersed in Christ, Christ you have been clothed in. There is not one Judean or Greek. There is not one bondman or freeman. There is not one male and female, for you are all one in Christ, Yahshua. And, of course, Paul is talking to the seed of Jacob, the single seed from Abraham explained in Galatians 3.15, the anointed seed of Abraham's descendants of the children of Jacob. So we can't take this outside of the scope of that previous statement where Paul is discounting Abraham's other children, those with Keturah and Esau and Ishmael. Both of these epistles, having been written before Paul's final meeting with James, which is recorded in Acts chapter 21, it is evident 
that before that meeting, Paul formed all of his opinions concerning Judean Christians in relation to the Mosaic Law, that they stood on the same ground as the Christians of the nations. Yet here, where Paul circumcises Timothy on account of the Judeans, he may not have yet developed that understanding. Neither has he yet had his unrecorded meeting with Peter in Antioch, described in Galatians 2, where he notes the hypocrisy of Peter, James, and Barnabas in compelling Judean Christians to keep the Mosaic Law. Why Paul exceeded to James? In Jerusalem, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 21, cannot be told with complete certainty except to say that he had acceded to his elders in the past. In Acts chapter 15, before he knew that they would favor his opinion. And so he acceded to James's wishes again in Acts chapter 21, James being his elder. There is, however, one very firm possibility. Note that in Acts chapter 21, in verse 21, James criticizes Paul for teaching Judeans not to circumcise their children. Of course, the Judeans were already circumcised, right? In his epistle to the Corinthians, in, in chapter 7, in verse 20, Paul holds the position that, and I quote, each in the calling which he has been called, in this he must abide. And it was most likely for this very reason that he himself later submitted to the cleansing ritual recommended by James. Because Paul was called in the circumcision, in this he must abide. Paul would abide in the commandments of the Mosaic Law. Recorded, the cleansing ritual which he underwent is recorded in Acts 21, verses 23 through 26. Feeling that he was circumcised, he believed that he himself was committed to keep the Mosaic Law. That's what he's saying. Each in the calling in which he has been called, in this he must abide. He expresses that again in Galatians chapter 5, where he says, from verse 1, In the freedom in which Christ has set us free, you stand fast indeed, and do not again be entangled in the yoke of bondage, language from Acts chapter 15. He's only teaching what the apostles decided. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you should be circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again to every man getting himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. As he told the Corinthians, each in the calling in which he has been called, in this he must abide. So Paul, being of the circumcision, evidently had no problem complying with James and acceding to, to the wishes of his elder. From his own words, The book of Acts, being a book which records a religious transition, 
Here in the opening of Acts chapter 16, it is recorded that Paul circumcises Timothy. Evidently not yet having come to the full realization of the faith in Christ, which he later explains in his epistles, which culminates in the attainment of righteousness in Christ apart from the law and its rituals. Timothy, being the son of a Judean woman, if he had already been keeping the precepts of the Mosaic law by his own familial custom, then it would not really matter if he were circumcised, except to the Judeans. As Paul told the Corinthians in this very same discourse, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but keeping the commandments of God. Paul had also told the Corinthians from chapter 9 of his epistle, Therefore, being free from all, to all I myself had become a bondman, in order that I would gain of the greater profit, and I became to the Judeans as a Judean, that I would gain the Judeans. To those subject to law, as subject to law, and he puts in in, in a parenthetical statement, not being subject to law myself, that I would gain those subject to law. Paul knew that he was free from the law in Christ. To those without law, as without law, and he puts in a parenthetical statement, not being without the law of Yahweh, but keeping within the law of Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments, but the rituals are unnecessary. That I would gain those without law. So with this, we will proceed with Acts chapter 16, slowly. And they arrived, the Codex Beze had, and passing through these nations, then they arrived. And they arrived in Derbe and in Lustra. And behold, there was a certain student there with the name Timotheus. Timotheus actually means valued by God or honored by God. The son of a faithful Judean woman, but of a Greek father, who was accredited by the brethren in Lustra and Iconium. In his Christian mission, Paul first visited Derbe and Lustra, cities of Lycaonia, with Barnabas, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 14. Here it is evident that Timothy was already a student of Christianity, as his mother also must have been. For Paul writes, in recollection of his meeting with Timothy, in his second epistle to him, telling him of that unfeigned faith which is in you, which abode first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunica or Eunice, Now I am convinced that also is in you. Verse 3 of Acts 16. And Paul desired for him to depart with him 
And taking him, he circumcised him on account of the Judeans who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. The third century papyrus P45 and the codices Beze and Laudianus and the majority text have, for they all knew his father, that he was a Greek. And that reading implies that Timothy's father must have been a well-known individual. In the Christianian New Testament, it's following the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Ephraimi Siri. Paul later explained to the Corinthians that he became to the Judeans as a Judean, that he would gain the Judeans. Evidently, Timothy agreed, and submitting to be circumcised, he also chose to become as a Judean, so that he may help gain the Judeans. At that time, there were still plenty of true Israelite Judeans to bring to Christ. Timothy was of a Greek father and a Judean mother. And therefore, according to the measure of the profane Greek writers, meaning the secular Greek writers, he would have been considered a bastard. This seems to be why Paul addressed his first epistle to him with the words, to Timotheus, or to Timothy, purely bred child in faith, favor, mercy, peace, from Father Yahweh and Christ Yahshua, our Prince. As if he was assuring him that he was indeed not a bastard. Now the King James reading of that passage is quite different. However, that Greek word, genesios, which I've translated as purely bred, that word means legitimately born, not Spurious. And that definition even comes from the enhanced Strong's lexicon included in the BibleWorks software. Of course, I'm very familiar with the word Genesius, and it does mean authentically born. It means of the race, as Liddell and Scott define the word. It's actually the antonym of Nathus, which is a bastard, a half-breed. Now, the King James translation translates Genesius, which means legitimately born, as own, O-W-N, own, where the word my was then unjustly interpolated by the translators of that version. That's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. There's no, there's no atoning for that. Many of the original Greek tribes being descended from the Israelites of the ancient dispersions, not from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, from the Israelites of much more ancient dispersions, 400, 500 years and sometimes as much as 900 years before the Assyrian deportations. Timothy, having a Judean mother and a Greek father, 
certainly was not illegitimate in the eyes of Yahweh our God. Verse 4. And as they passed through the cities, they transmitted to them to keep the opinions decided by the ambassadors and elders who are in Jerusalem. The word dogma, we're all familiar with that word dogma. Certain people like to throw it around. That word is opinion here. According to Liddell and Scott, an opinion, a, a dogma is, and, and it comes from the word dokeo, which actually means to suppose, a dogma is that which seems to one, an opinion. And it could also be a public decree or an ordinance in certain contexts. A dogma is an interpretation of man, that which seems to one, an opinion, and not a law handed down by God. And that's also pretty clear from the manner in which the apostles made the decision concerning the Mosaic law recorded in Acts chapter 15. They evaluated the situation according to Scripture, and they handed down a dogma, an opinion. We cannot lose sight of the fact that even though James and Paul later disagreed on the relationship of Judean Christians to the Mosaic Law, they, along with Peter, all agreed fully and explicitly that Christians from among the nations would not be bound to either the circumcision or to the Mosaic Law, as the apostles Peter and James are both recorded as having professed in Acts chapter 15. Now, of course, Christians, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 3, should seek out of righteousness to keep the laws of God, where he says, yeah, we established a law. We're not bound to that law. We're not bound to its judgments. We've all, if indeed we are children of Israel, we've all been granted mercy by Christ. We're not bound to the judgments and the rituals of the law. And if we were bound to the judgments of the law, we would all be liable to death. Of course, Christ tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments. But we're no longer enslaved to the rituals and to the circumcision. The works of the law, as Paul calls them throughout his epistles. Because we're forgiven, because we know, being Christian Israelites, that we are going to spend eternity with one another, we better keep his commandments, and we better love our brother. Forever is a long time. Because Paul and James agreed on these things in application to Christians of the nations, for this reason, the dispute is not evident in James's single epistle addressed to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, 
who were the uncircumcised. No Christian epistles from the apostles to the circumcised are known to have survived except Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. That's the only one. Verse 5. So then the assemblies were strengthened in the faith and abounded in number each day. The Codex Beze wants the words in the faith. While Pisidian Antioch was, of course, in the ancient district of Pisidia, and while Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe were all in the ancient district of Lycaonia, as the geography of Anatolia was divided by the Greeks, all of those cities were within the Roman administrative province of Galatia. Therefore, technically, it is unclear whether Paul's epistle to the Galatians included the assemblies of these Greek cities, and there's a reason why it's unclear. However, in the following verse, from verse 6, it is evident that Luke has been using the older Greek names for the districts which are described and not the Roman administrative names. He does use a Roman administrative name a little later in this chapter where he mentions Asia, but that's the only one. Here he is not, call, he is not saying, even though, you, you see, the Greeks had Anatolia divided up into provinces from very ancient times, and those provinces roughly corresponded with the tribes that dwelt in, the, and dwelt in those places. However, the Romans drew their own lines and created their own provinces. And even though to the Greeks, Galatia was a kingdom north of Lycaonia and near Phrygia, to the Romans, Galatia included Lycaonia and Phrygia because they redrew the lines. But here, Paul, here Luke distinguishes, and in Acts chapter 14, he distinguishes Iconium, Lustra, and Derbe as being in Lycaonia. Just like he distinguishes Pisidian Antioch as being in Pisidia. Now, Pisidia was part of the ancient, what was part of the Roman province of Asia, but that doesn't mean that Pisidia was in Asia to the Greeks. When we get to Acts chapter 16, verse 6, Luke mentions Galatia and Phrygia, but by Roman provincial usage, all of these cities would be in Galatia. Lystra, Derbe, they were in Galatia. Iconium, it was in Galatia. But not to the Greeks. They were in Lycaonia, the original Greek name for that district or for that country. This is confusing. When we get to the next verse, we'll see that Galatia and Phrygia are mentioned, and they're mentioned separately. But if we, if we imagine Luke to be using the Roman provincial names, Phrygia is in Galatia, and that doesn't make any sense. 
So Luke must be referring to Galatia as the Greeks use the term. Galatia, the ancient kingdom, which became a kingdom at the end of the 3rd century B.C., when the Cimmerians, well, when the Galatahi, they were called at that time, basically um, looted and pillaged some of the Greek cities and moved into that region and settled there and had a truce with the Greeks. So it's evident that Luke is following the Greek names for the districts which are described and not the Roman administrative names. This is evident in the next verse because there was no Roman province called Phrygia. There was no Roman province called Pisidia or Lycaonia, which Luke has used here and in Acts chapter 14. And these provinces, these districts, these smaller districts, were all part of the Roman province of Galatia. Phrygia was the name of one of the most ancient nations of central Anatolia, as those nations were known in ancient times to the Greeks. Phrygia was for the most part destroyed by the invading Cimmerians in the closing years of the 7th century BC. To the Greeks, Galatia was a part of Phrygia, which was later settled by Germanic tribes towards the end of the 3rd century BC. In Acts chapter 14, Luke called Antioch, Antioch in Pisidia. Now, Pisidia was part of the Roman administrative district of Galatia, but Luke is distinguishing Pisidia from Galatia here because Galatia was also the name of that ancient kingdom in the north. So the Romans reused the term Galatia and expanded it to cover several districts. Luke is distinguishing those in this chapter as he did in the previous chapters. Therefore, we know, from that we know that Luke is using the ancient Greek names for these districts and distinguishing them. In Acts chapter 14, Luke called Lustra and Derbe cities of Lycaonia. But the province, the, the district of Lycaonia was part of the Roman province of Galatia. But Luke called them cities of Lycaonia after the name of the ancient Greek district. Therefore, Luke, using the older Greek designations for all of these districts, it should rather be supposed because of the names, the way which these names are used in Acts, it should rather be supposed that Paul's later epistle to the Galatians was written to the assemblies in the original district of Galatia, the ancient Greek kingdom, well, well, Celtic kingdom, actually, which was to the north of Pisidia and Lycaonia, and that he did not intend to address the Roman province of that name. It is this original Galatia, occupied by Germanic tribes who were known to the Greeks as the Galatahi, that Paul is about to pass through here in Acts chapter 16. So if Galatia is used in that manner in, in, the, in the book of Acts to refer to the ancient kingdom of the Galatahi, 
And there were many Greeks living there, and we'll see that. And, and the Gauls had mixed with the Greeks there, and we'll see that, but that's okay. They're all the same race. If Luke is using the word Galatia to refer to that ancient kingdom, <coughs> and not to the entire Roman province, in the book of Acts, and he certainly is, then we should expect or expect Paul to be using the term in that same manner in his epistle to the Galatians. Excuse me. According to Strabo, in Book 12, Chapter 5 of his geography, certain tribes of the Galatahi had overrun parts of Bithynia and the Italic kingdom of which Pergamon was the capital. And I quote, until by voluntary session they received the present Galatia or Gallo-Grecia as it is called. That's Strabo's Geography, Book 12, Chapter 5, Paragraph 1. And it is fully evident that a great number of Greeks continued to dwell in the region, although it fell for a time under Germanic kings, and it was under Germanic kings for, for a good at least 150 years, until the later Roman conquests. Theodore Siculus also stated that the Galatahi, who settled in Anatolia, and I quote, settled themselves upon the lands of the peoples they had subdued in the war, being called in time Greco-Gauls, because they came, became mixed with the Greeks. That's Theodore Siculus, Library of History, Book 5, Chapter 32, Paragraph 5. The Galatahi, it is evident, were descended from Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, Many of the Greek tribes were descended from earlier dispersions of Israel, excepting the Ionian Greeks, the Japhethites. They, they were descended from Javan in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. Verse 6. And they passed through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This must be a reference to the ancient kingdom of Galatia the Celtic or, or Germanic kingdom, being prevented by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Wow, has this verse been abused by identity Christians. Very unfortunately, this verse is often used by identity Christians to somehow prove that Paul was forbidden to speak the gospel among the so-called peoples whom we know today as Asians. Even Wesley Swift repeated such a farcical reference to Asia here in his 1963 sermon entitled Man of Sin. And this is what he said, and I quote, The Apostle Paul said that the Spirit forbade me to go into Asia. The Apostle Paul's ministry first tried to reach those with, it, with whom he had been associated with, those of his own household. Therefore, he went into southern Europe and into the Isles. Well known as the path of the Apostle Paul as he went under the people of your race. 
Swift's statement clearly implies that those in Paul's own race were not found in the Asia of Acts 16.6, which is utterly ridiculous. And Wesley Swift should have known better than to spew such nonsense, which is often repeated among identity Christians to this very day. The truth is that this verse, Acts 16.6, has nothing at all to do with modern Asia or the so-called Oriental, well, well, the Oriental so-called peoples, who were all absolutely excluded from anything biblical by any means. Asia here describes a Roman province, the westernmost province of Anatolia, which included the ancient countries known to the Greeks as Caria, Aeolus, Ionia, Lydia, Mysia, and the Troad. There were no Chinamen. There were no Turks in any of these countries at that time. In this Asia, there were several cities which Paul visited later, where he had established Christian assemblies. Paul's first epistle was addressed to the elect, I'm sorry, Peter's first epistle was addressed to the elect sojourners of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, looking in the map, that's practically all of Anatolia. Asia was also home to all of the seven churches of the Revelation. Every one of them were in Asia. All seven churches of the Revelation found in chapters 2 and 3 of that book were in Asia. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thuatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea were all in Asia. It is apparent, however, that the Spirit was guiding Paul to Macedonia and did not want him to spend time in these other places first. He would go to Asia later, several times. He would spend a lot of time in Asia. But it had nothing to do with Orientals. It had nothing to do with yellow squat monsters. Verse 7. Then coming by Mysia, they attempted, the Codex Beze has desired, to go into Bithynia. Yet the spirit of Yahshua did not allow them The spirit of Yahweh prevented Paul and his companions from preaching the gospel in Asia or in Bithynia, ostensibly because he was guiding them to the Troad and then to Macedonia. This does not mean that Asia and Bithynia were shunned, but only temporarily delayed the privilege of hearing the gospel from the apostle Paul. As it is evident from the Revelation and from the first epistle of Peter and the later records of Luke and the epistles of Paul, Asia and Bithynia certainly did receive the gospel a short time later, after Paul's journey to Macedonia. Mysia, mentioned here, 
was southeast of the Troads, and Bithynia was further to the east, bordering the Black Sea and north of Galatia. Verse 8, And passing by Mysia, they went down into the Troad. They went down because they were traveling from the interior highlands to the regions bordering the sea. The northeastern part of the agency here, the Troad is the northwesternmost portion of Anatolia or modern Turkey. Verse 9, And during the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A certain man of Macedon was standing, the Codex Beze has standing before his face, and exhorting him, saying, Crossing over into Macedonia, help us. And as he saw the vision, immediately we sought to depart from Macedonia, concluding that Yahweh had summoned us to announce the good message to them. And the majority text has the Greek words for the Lord rather than for God. The Codex Beze has verse 10 to read. So awakening, he described the vision to us, and we understood that the prince had summoned us to announce the good message to those in Macedonia. The conclusion of the apostles must have been that this alone was the reason why they were diverted from Asia and Bithynia, since indeed they are found in those regions after their visit to Macedonia. Wesley Swift has to be corrected. Note here, and so does everybody, every other identity Christian who oversimplifies and basically lies about Acts 16.6 just to prove a point. No lie is the truth. Paul says that if the truth of God were advanced by my lie, why am I still a sinner? Because you lied, that's why. Verse 9. I'm sorry, we discussed, we covered verse 9. We presented verse 9. Note here that in verse 10, where Luke writes, immediately we sought to depart from Macedonia. And that they concluded that Yahweh summoned us to announce the good message to them. Here, for the first time in Acts, Luke writes in the first person using forms of words for we and for us. So here we know with absolute certainty that Luke is in the company of Paul. So this is definite evidence that from here Luke is with Paul on his journeys. There is circumstantial evidence, as we discussed while presenting Luke chapter 15, that Luke was also present at those events but we don't know it from his own narrative. Verse 11, And setting sail from the Troad, we ran a straight course to Samothrake, Samothrace, if I must, and on the next day to New City. Samothrace, is still the name, well, in, in a bastardized form of the Greek, Samothrake, 
is still the name for an island that lays between the Troad and Anatolia, and that part of Europe known anciently as Thrace, or Thrace, an ancient country now split between Bulgaria and parts of Greece and Turkey. Samothrace, according to the most ancient Greek poets, was the temporary home of the legendary Darda before he moved to the place on the mainland of Anatolia, where the city of Troy was eventually founded. According to Pausanias, the island was originally called Dardania, a name which we'll see on the mainland of Europe before the end of this chapter or, or before the end of this presentation tonight. The words new city here, Neapolis, two words in most of the codexes, in some of them one word, Neapolis. The words new city is a purely literal translation. Neapolis, new city. Neapolis. There is another Neapolis in Italy. The name has been contracted over time to Naples. This city here, Neapolis, new city, is the modern Kavala. And by it is a river, which empties into the Aegean, which is now called the River Zygakte. It's very near to the place where Octavian and Mark Antony defeated Brutus and Cassius for control of the empire in 42 BC. Verse 12. And from there to Philippus, or Philippi, if I must, which is the first city of the district of Macedonia, a colony. And we, spending time, were in that city some days. Now, being a colony, Philippi, or Philippus, had a special status in the Roman Empire and was a center for Roman administration. Diodorus Siculus set out to write a general history of the world from the time of creation to his own time. Therefore, the first ten of what were originally 40 books, nearly half of which are now lost, excepting some fragments, dealt mostly with the earliest oral histories and fables. The two were always inseparable, right? The earliest oral histories and fables of the important world cultures, the Egyptian, the Assyrian, the Scythian, the Ethiopian, and the Greek as well as those of some of the other related peoples. Diodorus related these from a rather pagan Greek perspective. And here is what he says about the founding of Macedonia, or Macedonia, from Book 1, Chapter 20 of his Library of History. And I quote, Osiris, also took an interest in hunting elephants, and everywhere left behind him inscribed pillars telling of his campaign. And he visited all the other nations of Asia as well, and crossed into Europe at the Hellespont. 
In Thrace, he slew Lycurgus, the king of the barbarians, who opposed his undertaking. And Marin, who was now old, he left there to supervise the culture of the plants, which he introduced into that land, and caused him to found a city to bear his name, which he called Marinaya. Macedon, his son, moreover, he left as king of Macedonia, which was named after him, while to Tripotalamus he assigned the care of agriculture in Attica. Finally, Osiris in this way visited all the inhabited world and advanced community life by the introduction of the fruits which are the most easily cultivated. And if any country did not admit of the growing of, of the vine, he introduced the drink prepared from barley. That's a reference to something called Zithus, which was Egyptian beer, which is little inferior to wine in aroma and strength. On his return to Egypt, he brought with him the very greatest presents from every quarter, and by reason of the magnitude of his benefactions, received the gift of immortality with the approval of all men in honor equal to that offered to the gods of heaven. After this, he passed from the midst of men into the company of the gods and received from Isis and Hermes sacrifices in every other highest honor. These also instituted rites for him and introduced many things of a mystic nature, magnifying in this way the power of the god. So we see in the myths surrounding the founding of Macedonia a strong connection to Egypt, as also the Danan Greeks who inhabited the Peloponnese and other parts were also said to have come from Egypt. We also see in these myths a supposed translation to the gods, much like the translations of Enoch and Elijah, which we see in the Hebrew Bible. However, it must be remembered that this portion of Dedorus's work is said to be compiled from an Egyptian perspective. Now from the writings of the Byzantine emperor. Constantine VII, Porphyrogenitus. Porphyrogenitus actually means purple jeans. That, that's a joke, right? Porphyrogenitus means royally born, but Porphyrus is purple, and genitus means of one's genus or one's birth. Constantine VII Porphyrogenitus lived in the 10th century AD. And in his writing, he was a, he, he was a well, rather obscure today, but he was a rather, rather avid writer, and, and some, of, some ancient works that were lost are preserved through his writing, and this is one of them. From his work, we see this, based upon a now lost portion of the works of Hesiod, and I'm quoting Constantine Porphyrogenitus, translated into English. The district of Macedonia took its name from Macedon, the son of Zeus, and Tyria, Deucalion's daughter, as Hesiod says. And she conceived and bare to Zeus who delights in the thunderbolt two sons, Magnus and Macedon, 
rejoicing in horses who dwell round about Pieria and Olympus. And Magnus again begot Dictus and godlike Polydectes. That's from the works of Hesiod, printed by the Harvard University Press in the Loeb Classical Library. A full, a, a full citation will be in my notes. Deucalion was the Greek, was the Noah of Greek mythology, from whom all Greeks, according to Greek mythology, but certainly not all people, were said to have descended after a flood. Of course, much of this is a fable, which also seems to have been molded for the purpose of later political expediency, which is a factor that must be considered in the evaluation of all myths. From a period somewhat more historical, where lost portions of the work of Diodorus Siculus survive in fragments in the writing of Eusebius, namely in Eusebius's Chronicle, which are incorporated into the Loeb Classical Library edition of Eusebius, of, of, I'm sorry, of Diodorus Siculus's Library of History in Book 7 at Chapter 15. There it is, it is explained, Eusebius quoting a now lost portion of Diodorus Siculus, it is explained there of a Greek king, Caranus, who was covetous of possessions, before the first Olympiad, gathered forces from the Argives and from the rest of the Peloponnesus, and with his army advanced against the territory of the Macedonians. And skipping a section that's unrelated, by such a genealogy, trustworthy historians trace the line of the kings of the Macedonians back to Heracles, from Caranus who was the first to unite the power of Macedon and to hold it, to Alexander, who subdued the land of Asia. There are reckoned 24 kings in 480 years. Therefore, the time of Caranus and the Greek conquest of Macedonia must have been about 800 B.C. The first Olympiad, by popular chronologies, being a four-year period, which begins, which began in 776 BC. Strabo, in his geography, in Book Seven and Chapter Forty One, tells us that it is clear that in early times, as now, the Pahionians occupied much of what is now Macedonia. In chapter 38 of that same book, Strabo is recorded as having written that some represent the Pahionians as colonists from the Phrygians. But then Strabo also presents an alternate explanation that the Pahionians were originally, originally one and the same as the Pelagonians. And those same people were also later called Pelasgians by the Greeks. Now, the Phrygians were said in the early accounts to have themselves been descendants of the Thracians, neighbors to the Macedonians. And the Phrygians, I'm sorry, the Thracians, along with the Ionians, are listed in the, in the Hebrew genealogies as sons of Japheth, 
in Genesis chapter 10, the Thracians being Tiras, T-I-R-A-S, and the Ionians being Javan, J-A-V-A-N. And the etymological identifications can be made with all certainty once we examine the Hebrew words and how they are translated in the Septuagint and how they appear in ancient inscriptions. However, the Pahionians were said in the Iliad of Homer to have been allies of the Trojans in their war against the Danan Greeks, the Pahionians being the principal residents of Macedonia originally, according to Strabo. From Herodotus' Histories, Book 5, Chapter 13, we see this statement. The Pahionians were colonists of the Teucrians from Troy. This is all very plausible, since a well-known district adjacent to the north of Macedonia, where modern Kosovo lies today, was called Dardania well into historical times, until the entire region was taken over by invading Slavs in the Middle Ages. Darda, for which Dardania was named, Darda was, of course, the legendary founder of Troy. And Dardania was there all the way back to the Peloponnesian Wars. Another people which must be which must be mentioned here are the Illyrians, the western neighbors of the Macedonians. Their origins are also shrouded in divergent Greek myths. However, most of those myths connect the Illyrians to Cadmus the Phoenician the legendary founder and king of Thebes in Greece, who was also said to have once been the king of the Illyrians. Strabo, in his geography, counts the Dardanians north of Macedonia as one of the Illyrian peoples. Book 7, chapter 5, paragraph 12. That may more accurately reveal their origins because it agrees with Herodotus. And the probability that they too descended from the Trojans, the Illyrians, were known to the Greeks from the earliest times and even had a small role in the Peloponnesian War, as Thucydides describes in the fourth book of his work on that subject. According to the Greek historian Procopius of Caesarea, who wrote in the 6th century AD, and who was personally familiar with the Emperor Justinian, the great emperor of the Byzantine Empire, that emperor was a Dardanian by race, 
and that statement appears in a work of Procopius called Buildings, which is actually a work about some of the magnificent edifices of the empire. Buildings, Book 4, Chapter 1, verse or Paragraph 17. Justinian was a Dardanian. Cadmus the Phoenician was one of the legendary founders of Greek civilization, who was among those who were said to have departed from Egypt by sea. At the same time, Moses led the balance of the so-called strangers in Egypt out in the Exodus. As Diodorus Siculus describes in detail in Book 40, Chapter 3 of his Library of History, where he says... When in ancient times a pestilence arose in Egypt, the common people ascribed their troubles to the workings of a divine agency. For indeed, with many strangers of all sorts dwelling in their midst and practicing different rites of religion and sacrifice, their own traditional observances in honor of the gods had fallen into, fallen into disuse. Hence, the natives of the land surmised that unless they removed the foreigners, their troubles would never be resolved. At once, therefore, the aliens were driven from the country, and the most outstanding and active among them banded together, and, as some say, were cast ashore in Greece and certain other regions. Their leaders were notable men, chief among them being Cat Danos, and Cadmus. But the greater number were driven into what is now called Judea, which is not far distant from Egypt. And was it and was at that time utterly uninhabited. The colony was headed by a man called Moses, outstanding both for his wisdom and for his courage. Danos is the legendary leader of the Danans from Egypt into the Peloponnese. Cadmus was called Cadmus the Phoenician throughout the Greek, the Greek poets. Diodorus had also written this account from an Egyptian point of view. And therefore, Christians should see that it is an account of the Exodus which was developed as political spin meant to depict the Egyptians favorably. So we see with Macedonia, in the myths surrounding its origins, a relationship to Egypt. That should not be a surprise to students of identity Christianity. Why is all of this history important? Because if Paul was the apostle to the nations, and if Christ came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and if Paul, as he explains in Romans chapter 4, is bringing the gospel to those nations which descended from the seed of Abraham, which he also explains is the fulfillment of the faith of Abraham, 
then it is important to realize the origins of those nations to whom Paul brought the gospel. Understanding this history is therefore the fulfillment of our Christian faith. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that the faith of Abraham was that Abraham believed God when God told him that his offspring would become many nations. That's the faith of Abraham. That's the fulfillment of our Christian faith, is understanding that we are the children. of those promises. Something that is not discussed in this chapter of Acts, where Paul is recorded as having visited and having preached the gospel in Macedonia, is that he also must have visited and preached the gospel in Illyria. In Romans chapter 15, Paul wrote, and I quote from verse 18, Indeed, I will not venture to speak anything of which Christ has not fashioned through me regarding the compliance of the nations. In word and deed, by power of signs and wonders, by power of the Spirit of Yahweh, consequently for me, from Jerusalem, and in a circuit as far as Illyrica, Illyrica was the principal city of the Illyrians, to have fulfilled the good message of the anointed, <clears throat> I believe the King James has Illyricum in that, in that verse, using the Roman spelling. Yet Christianity was brought to Rome itself long before Paul of Tarsus was ever able to go there. Ostensibly, and there's a paper on this at Christogenia, classical records of Trojan, Roman, Judah, ostensibly the Romans and the Trojans are descended primarily from the Zara branch of the tribe of Judah. It may well had been for this reason that Paul was prodded by the Spirit to preach in Macedonia before he brought the gospel to the provinces of Asia and Bithynia. That the word of God had said through the prophet Zechariah that Yahweh also shall save the tents of Judah first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. Zechariah 12.7 Note that both the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are distinguished from Judah in that oracle. 
while ostensibly there were people from other Israelite tribes who had received the gospel before this time, it was nevertheless being disseminated almost exclusively through the assembly halls of the Judeans up to this point, whether they were in Palestine or elsewhere. However, the sending of Paul to the Macedonia before he went to the Greeks of Asia is, I am persuaded, a sign of the truth and the surety of the fulfillment of the prophecy of God that Yahweh would save the tents of Judah first. With this, we shall repeat verse 12. And from there to Philippus, from New City, right, from the coast, to Philippus, which is the first city of the district of Macedonia, a colony, and we spending time were in that city some days. This phrase, and, and, and there's some, some um, translation differences which I'm going to elucidate. This phrase, which is the first city of the district of Macedonia, that follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Ephraim, Siri, and the majority text. The Nestle land, Novum Testamentum Grece, which I, I, I rarely depart from, but I do at times in my translation. For some clerical reason, it, it admits to be following the Latin Vulgate in this instance, which I just don't understand, which is where it has, which is a city of the first district of Macedonia. The Codex Vaticanus has, which is the first city of a district of Macedonia. The Beze has, which is the head city of a district of Macedonia. The Lavianus has, which is the first part, I'm sorry, which is the first city of part of Macedonia. There's like four or five different readings here. While it is popularly said that Philippi was founded by Philip II of Macedon, in 356 BC. In Fragments of Strabo's Geography, Book 7, Chapter 41, it's recorded that in earlier times, Philippi was called Crenides and was only a small settlement, but it was enlarged after the defeat of Brutus and Cassius when, as it is noted in the Loeb Classical Library edition of Strabo, it was made a Roman colony after 42 BC. This Philippi was, of course, the home of the Christian assembly to which Paul had later sent an epistle, where Paul had described in that epistle his defense of Christianity before the Roman emperor. So that epistle was written at the very end of Paul's life. In verse 21 of Acts chapter 16, there is a profession, and we'll talk about it at length in the next segment of this presentation. There was a profession that Christianity was not lawful for Romans to adopt. However, Judaism was tolerated. In that epistle, Paul was, had also recounted how the Philippians had helped provide for his necessities 
while he was in Thessalonica, which is also on the mainland section of Greece. Verse 13, And on the day of the Sabbaths, we departed outside of the gate by the river, we're in Philippi now, which we supposed to be for prayer. And sitting, we spoke to the women gathered there. I have to talk about another difference among the manuscripts. And, and this one is entertaining, I, I hope. It is to me. Here there's a difference in readings among the manuscripts, which I am persuaded was caused by misunderstandings of Luke's intentions. Now, the Codex Bese has, which was supposed to be for prayer, having a form of the verb dokeo. All the other manuscripts have nomizo, or forms of the verb nomizo. But it appears in various forms here. The Laudianus and the majority text have, which was supposed to be for prayer, where nomizo may be read with the accompanying words, which according to custom was to be for prayer. And Thayer notes that in his Greek-English lexicon. But that reading seems to strain the sense of the accompanying words. The Christogenian New Testament, where the entire phrase is translated quite literally, follows the Codices Alexandrinus and Vaticanus and the Codex Ephraimis Syri. The Codex Sinaiticus has a third-person singular form of the same verb, which would be read like the majority text is. However, it instead appears to be an error for the text in the other codices. The three forms of the word which appear here in the Codex Laudianus and the majority text, and no zeto, and in the Alexandrinus, Vaticanus and Ephraimi Siri and Omidzen and in the Sinaiticus I'm sorry, and Omidzomen and in the Sinaiticus and Omidzen. There's a there's a syllable missile missing. There's one syllable missing, the O M. Which takes it from a first person plural to a third person singular. It was customary for Judeans to gather by a river for prayer, and we will cite Ezekiel 1.1 and Ezekiel 3.15 and Ezekiel 10.20 and a passage in Daniel in order to demonstrate that, Daniel 8.2. Many translators have taken this word, nomizo, and they've tried to interpret it insisting that it applies to the gathering for prayer. I'm going to read um, the ASV in this manner as soon as I could get to it. And on the Sabbath day, we went forth without the gate by a riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And they actually added those words that they took a, 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 um, 
they took the present form, the present infinitive form of the verb to be, which is to be in the Christogenian New Testament, and they translated it as there was, which is a past tense form. And then they added the words a place. And, and why I think, I, I mean, I may have lost my, my listeners already, and, and this will be clearer, I pray, when they read my notes. Why I think this is funny is because of that. But because they couldn't interpret this passage in a manner where they could literally translate the words, which we supposed to be for prayer. Luke is talking about the gate. And on the day of the Sabbaths, we departed outside of the gate by the river, which we supposed to be for prayer. It's clear to me when I translated this passage that the existence of this particular gate by the river, Paul and Luke supposed, was to allow the people to go outside of the city to pray by the river. That's why the gate was there. That's what Luke's talking about. He's not talking about the custom of gathering for prayer, which is how the translators, and, and evidently some of the, the manuscript transcribers, because of the divergence in the words in the form of the verb that appears there, that's how some of them had interpreted, had interpreted the passage. So, so I, I think that's entertaining. I, I might just be um, strange. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kabar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Why was Ezekiel by the river among the captives? Ezekiel 3.15. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, I was among the captives by the river Kabar, that the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. It's almost the same as, as the, um, the preceding verse. Ezekiel 10, verse 20. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river of Kabar. And I knew that they were cherubims. Everyone had four faces apiece, and everyone had four wings. And the likeness of the hands of man was under their wings. And the likeness of their faces was the same faces which I saw by the river Kabar. I'm looking for Ezekiel 3.15. Because I, I copied the same passage twice, and I have to apologize for that. Their appearances, Ezekiel 10.20, well, 10.22 now, their appearances and themselves, they went every one straight forward. Ezekiel 3.15, Then I came to them of the captivity at Tel Aviv that dwelt by the river of Kabar, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them several days, seven days. 
it seems to me that Ezekiel kept seeing these visions by the river Kabar because they were praying by the river Kabar. They didn't live in the mud on the river. From these passages in Ezekiel, it is wholly apparent that the prophet received his visions as he was praying on the banks of the river Kabar. This is also evident in the writings of the prophet Daniel, Daniel 8, verse 2. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Ule. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two lions, two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And when he came to the ram, it had two horns, which I saw, had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. So Daniel sees visions by a river, and Ezekiel sees a series of visions by a river, because they're praying by the river. That the Hebrews, especially when they were without a proper assembly hall or temple of their own, had a custom of praying by a river, is evident in the books of the prophets. This not only makes plain this episode of Acts, but also explains the success of the ministry of John the Baptist, and makes it apparent that many first century Judeans were eschewing the temple and the synagogues, the organized religious authorities, in favor of prayer at the banks of the Jordan. That's why John was baptizing in the river. People were gathering at the rivers in order to pray. And we see it in Ezekiel, and we see it in Daniel. In the next part of Acts chapter 16, we're going to discuss both Paul's bringing the message to women independently and we're going to discuss control of religion, which has always been necessary to the maintenance of the tyrannical state. And we see that later on in Acts chapter 16. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with Pragmatic Genesis Part 2, Explaining Two Seed Line. We're going to start. Now that we've established that there's only one atom created in Scripture, we're going to start an explanation of basic, what we consider basic two seed line principles with Genesis chapter 1. Thank you for listening, and good night. Praise Yahweh.